Welcome to the Empower to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, uh, one of our favorite people is Rhonda Mayroder. She is going to be with us to talk about um, a litany of things uh, within the world of transracial adoption. And so um, we had Rhonda on gosh, three years ago and talked with her specifically just about transracial adoption. Um, and the conversation uh, was really, really fun and fascinating. If you've not heard that episode, definitely go back and listen to it. Um, but uh, this one today, we we have been noticing, as I'm sure you have in the world, um, how many times this conversation within transracial adoption gets pulled one side to one specific angle um, and uh, stays there. And if you are a transracial adoptive parent or adoptee, or you are um, familiar with with the transracial adoption um, narrative and, and at all, you know that no part of that conversation belongs only in one side of uh, of the sphere when it, when it comes to talking about it. And so um, we want to talk about the nuance, the both and, um, the good and the bad, um, and those things kind of holding harmony together in this conversation. And Rhonda is definitely the person to do it. Rhonda is um, an author of multiple books, uh, award-winning books, including In Their Voices, um, where she went to talk to um, African-American community leaders and communities around the country to talk about the, the um, dynamics of black youth specifically being adopted into white families and what that meant on the black community side. Um, and it's a must read. And I said that once the interview started, so sorry, I said it twice. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, you should definitely go read that book. Secondarily, we just talked about um, a lot of those different dynamics that are are hard to wade into and that really um, have to be addressed by an adoptee because their their experiences are so um, unique um, that it is a viewpoint that is hard for parents to be able to understand or have. And so um, I hope this conversation is as much of a blessing to you uh, as it was to me personally when we had it. Um, you'll hear Tana on the episode for about half the episode and uh, we had a little computer battery issue and a little lack of a charging cord <laughs> issue. So Tana bowed out halfway through. Um, and so if you're watching, you'll see that. And it was kind of funny. Um, if you are listening, you'll just be like, Hey, where's Tana? And that's where she went. Um, lastly, I'll just say as, as a footnote, um, most of you, many of you have heard the story of Michael Orr um, resurfacing recently with a, a lawsuit with his, uh, what we all thought was an adoptive family. And, um, the conservatorship that was placed there. Uh, there are so many sides of that conversation. Uh, we weren't trying to duck that conversation today. In fact, I had planned to bring it up at some point, but we got so um, deep into the conversation with Rhonda where we were uh, and it was so rich and so good. I, I didn't want to deviate from that. And so uh, maybe we will have an episode at some point to talk through that. But if you follow that story at all, you know, that is going to require about six guests, a panel and 17 hours of discussion. So um, that was not one that ended up coming up today and not because we were scared to have the conversation or wanted to avoid it just because it is so wildly complicated and the conversation was so good with Rhonda, we just decided to leave it there. So uh, that is all before our interview. Uh, I will remind you, if you have uh, not been listening um, to this part of the podcast, if you're just skipping ahead, and if so, how dare you? <laughs> uh, we have our first ever Global Connection event coming up um, November 12th here in Memphis, Tennessee, and we have been 
holding on and waiting to announce um, the special guest publicly, but um, we are finally able to say um, we are super, super excited to have the one and only Nate Bargatze, who's a Grammy-nominated comedian. He's got um, multiple specials on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, uh, has just completed uh, what I, I think is about 18 straight months of touring um, and just one of the funniest human beings on the face of the planet is going to come and be with us at our um, first ever Investing in Hope fundraiser here in Memphis, Tennessee, November 12th. So the reason I bring that up, Nate is going to come and share a brand new hour of comedy. It's unreleased. So if you've watched all the specials, awesome. You should watch them again. That's great. But when he comes, new hour, uh, new jokes, new content. Uh, and we wanted to do something different for this fundraiser rather than just have a gala or just have kind of a, a generic fundraising event like we have all been to before. We wanted to have um, this kind of thing that would represent us and just to have fun, um, share where Empowered to Connect is, where we're going, um, be excited about that, raise some money so that we can begin, um, you know, new waves and new places of, of investment with our um, resources and time um, as we go out. So I hope you will make the choice to be with us that night. You can go to empoweredtoconnect.org slash investing in hope to buy two, uh, let's see, to buy tickets there. Yes, you can. And you can also, uh, if you don't want to have to type that in, just click the link in the show notes below to go to empoweredtoconnect.org slash investing in hope. Um, you can let us know who's coming with you. Uh, bring a friend, bring eight friends, whatever. Buy tickets, show up. It's going to be at the incredible Peabody Hotel in downtown Memphis. Um, the ducks will be there. It's going to be uh, amazing. If you don't understand the duck comment, you should look up the Peabody Hotel. So that's all I've got to say. This is maybe the longest introduction I've done in show history. <laughs> So come see us November 12th with Nate Bargatze in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, do it. Make the trip. It's so worth it. It's going to be an incredible, incredible fun night. Um, dinner and drinks on us that night. Literally, I'm not joking. Come on. We'll see you November 12th. And now, without any further ado, finally, our interview with uh, Tana Ottinger and the one and only Rhonda May Warda. Okay, well, we're here with uh, our old friend, Rhonda May Rorta and uh, Tana is here with us as well. And so we, uh, if you have listened to us from the get-go, Rhonda was one of our first guests um, back in 2020. And which that that is wild too, by the way, because it does not feel like it was that long ago. No, that feels like it was yesterday. Golly. Uh, but Rhonda was with us and we wanted to have her back on again today um, to talk about just the nuance that exists in the conversation of transracial adoption. And before we get started in the conversation, let me just eliminate you naysayers who I know are already saying this in your head. You cannot talk about all the nuance of transracial adoption in one podcast conversation. Well, yeah, duh, we know that. Thank you. But we're going to try. Yeah. We're going to start today and, and we're going to get, you know, as far as we can. And so um, Rhonda is an award-winning author, speaker, contributor to, I mean, what feels like half of society at this point um, in culture. And now we're going to add CNN contributor to her list as well. Um, but Rhonda, I, I, why don't we start with this? For people who are not familiar with you or your work, do you mind just giving us just a brief overview of kind of who you are and, and what you do? 
Yes. So uh, first of all, I want to uh, thank Empowered to Connect for having me uh, yet again on your very, very successful podcast. You're doing great work. Um, my name is Rhonda Rorda. I am a Black transracial adoptee. Uh, I was raised in uh, the Washington, D.C. Uh, community uh, with a uh, father who originated in uh, Friesland, uh, which is part of the northern part of uh, Netherlands. And then my mother uh, grew up in the Midwest. So I was adopted in the early 70s when the whole conversation around whether a Black child raised in a white home uh, was moral, ethical, and whether it should even happen. Mm -hmm. And the controversy was surrounded by many of the concerns Native Americans had when their children were pulled out of their communities. They were concerned for the child uh, that, you know, that they would would be separated from their legacy, their birth family, their community, their language, their rhythm, their their religion, values, just their spirit. And then also for the communities, they were concerned because you pull out children, children are your future. Mm -hmm. And you're pulling them out of communities, leaving pockets of voidness. And that's the same sentiment the National Association of Black Social Workers had in the early 70s. So me, along with many other adoptees of color, are living life today still living out whether transracial adoption is effective. And so my books, which right now are four books uh, that speak to the experiences of Black and biracial transracial adoptees, white adoptive parents who raised uh, the adoptees in the first book, and then also white non-adopted siblings. Those three books basically made the case for why it was critical that if we're going to talk about nuance and transracial adoption, we need to hear from many different voices. Yeah. And we never had heard from the communities in which these children were coming from. So in 2015, I published the award-winning book, In Their Voices, Black Americans on Transracial Adoption. And this is the first time that we have ever talked to members in the Black community through the Jim Crow, who grew up in the Jim Crow era, civil rights and post-civil rights. Yeah. Got to hear from them how they grew up 
what their values were that they were taught, what made them laugh, what made them cry, um, what were the challenges around race and discrimination that they had to navigate through. These are conversations that many of them had, whether it was the first mayor of Philadelphia, W. Wilson Good Sr., who was also my godfather, or the great-grandson of W.E.B. DeVore Boys, or, um, you know, world-renowned world folk or, or social workers, et cetera. A lot of, a lot of these uh, conversations that these individuals had in their homes were lacking in the white homes that adoptees across the board were dealing with in, in their white homes. And so what were those lessons that we could learn what were and and what were the truths we could embrace? And when you start talking around those areas, it's not just black and white. Mm-hmm. It's nuanced. It's a fascinating book, by the way. Like if you don't have that book, if you haven't uh, read it yet, go pick it up. We'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Um, and I think I told you this last time that you were on, so it's not new to you. But if you have not listened to that interview, you should definitely go back and listen to it with Rhonda. But that, I mean, it's a, it is a perspective that I am embarrassed to say I had never even thought of before um, diving into the book. And so as a transracial adopted dad with two African-American kids, like I would say if you're in that same boat at all, mandatory reading, you should definitely go read it. Um, it is it is powerful. Um, Rhonda, maybe before we even jump into what we said we were going to start with, maybe we could talk about the formation of that book. And maybe, um, I don't know if there are stories you can remember from when you were writing it that dealt directly with this with this topic of nuance and, and stories that might uh, to the majority culture community seem like they are very black and white one way issues. But then when you were writing the book, you found a whole kind of uh, a whole new side of the story as you talk to those communities. Yeah. So I will uh, draw from uh, the late Cyril Pender, who in the 60s, 70s played uh, for the NFL. Um, I know he played uh, Chicago Bears, Philadelphia Eagles. But he, he uh, after the NFL, developed a very successful career doing sales as an executive for NBC Network as well as ABC Network. I met him in AB, when I was at ABC and um, I included him in the book because he became such an extraordinary mentor to me. Mm. And he said some things in the book and to me personally that I never thought of. So when I first met him, I was a junior in college and I was studying in Chicago and television. And what was extraordinary is that the mentors around me were all black executives, professionals, people who stopped and poured into me and didn't have to. Sarah was one of those individuals. And what he said to me after he got to know me and, and, and taught me about sales and television and how to present myself was similar to what I heard at Harpo Studios when I was in Chicago. 
And Oprah looked at my hair and, you know, questioned how I was caring for it um, in the sense because I was black in a white family. I didn't understand really that I was black. And I just was trying to figure out my identity at that point. But Cyril, first Cyril said to me, Rhonda, you are black. And that means that you have to work twice as hard mm-hmm. to get a position in corporate America. Yeah. To you, and 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 that is so that when there's access, I'm ready. I'm ready to enter those doors. Yeah. And then he said, you need to know who you are and where you came from. So going back to transracial adoption, when I was adopted, this was pre-open adoptions. Yeah. Pre some of the conversation, but still very similar to what's going on today. But the 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 my story, my narrative began when I joined the Rorta family. Mm-hmm. So my past, and this is what I said on ABC Live, my connection to my legacy, my mama, my daddy, where I got my eyes, my wide nose, my lips, my sassiness, my self, <laughs> all of that was built in to my DNA. Yep. And so when I came to the table, I I came with way more than loss and grief. I came with an intelligence. I came with a rich legacy. And people just want to look at circumstances. Oh, she's black. She was in foster care. Look at we're saving her. That was my narrative. But Sarah is the one who said, and this may hurt to some of the adoptive parents out here, but in my case, he said, you give your white adoptive parents too much credit. Mm, I was mortified when he said that. Yeah. Yeah. But right now I'm finishing my memoir and it's basically a balance sheet. Yeah. Where credit is due. Love it. I love my adoptive parents, but I gave them a hundred percent credit for who I was. And I was like, oh my goodness, I would be worthless if it wasn't for them saving me. That's how as an adoptee, and I'm sure a lot of adoptees translate, I need to be grateful. So when Sarah said, you give your white adoptive parents too much credit, And he said, Rhonda, you have to look in the mirror and see what you bring to the table. You are smart. You are determined. You have had to fight out here without the assistance of your parents. They're not black. They don't know how many times you're going to be called the N word and how to navigate. So what he said is you need to know who you are and where you came from so that you can keep moving forward. When somebody tells you you're not good enough, we don't want you, you're not worthy to work over here, you're just a Negro in the streets. Mm. That's how he 
taught me. And then about nuance, he said, Rhonda, you need to know how to play on grass and you need to know how to play on turf. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I'm not good with sports. I had to look up. (laughs) What does that mean? Why is it so hard to work? Why is it so hard to play on turf versus, you know, and he's like, underneath that turf is cement. Yeah. And he was a runner. And he's like, you. So, Rhonda, don't plow through everything. See, that's that's sort of what what we've done in this transracial adoption discussion. We have plowed through everything without recognizing nuances, the, 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 the soil and the foundation underneath you, the context, the specific mm. situation, et cetera. And so, so we look at transracial adoption solely from one perspective. That is, white adoptive parents are saving these black and brown children. Yeah. Yeah. And so the only posture you have is to be grateful as an adoptee. And that's why when I was on CNN talking about Colin Kaepernick, when he said in his book launch that he loves his adoptive parents, he was sitting right next to them when he said but he experienced racism. Mm. That takes courage to say that because of the narrative that we need to be grateful. And what I needed to tell black and brown and white audiences is you, you can, can, you should be able to tell your truth as an adoptee. Now on Facebook, you can see white adoptive parents telling their Adopted children's truth, whether it's posting a photo of their kid's head and showing their scalp and a rash developing, whether it's saying that, you know, they messed up and we just can't deal with them anymore. I mean, I read a plethora of stories where white adoptive parents are feel the license, not all, some, the license to tell the stories and make the case of why they're better than if these children were in their birth family. Right. So we have to be honest when we have a conversation and realize there's value in all of these voices. White mm-hmm. adoptive parents have a tremendous value in telling their stories, their narratives, but so do the adoptees. Right. So do the non-adopted siblings and so does the community. And 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 telling our truths doesn't mean that you despise or that you're not grateful. I'm grateful that I first of all, I'm grateful that, yes, I was adopted, but I'm grateful that my mama chose in the early, late yeah. 60s to have me yeah. in the midst of social angst mm. and economic angst. I'm thankful she chose to give birth to me. I'm thankful that she had the right mind to say, these are the things I want for my daughter. I want her to have a college education because a college education for so many who did not have opportunity in the past was the past way through. And this is why in the black community, so many families say, you must get an education. You must be two times stronger. So Sarah was 
this inspiration that was a part of my life for 25 plus years before he passed in 2021. And um, to be there, to pray for me, to push me forward, to guide me. This is what mentorship looks like when, when, when our families give our children to people we trust, if it's my godmother or if it's a mentor and to get both narratives Because in my white home, they never told me I had to be twice as good. In fact, they didn't necessarily encourage me to go to college. That was me. I was determined to say to say it and to actually make the way. Yeah. Two different things to believe in or just to say it Mm. because the white kids, that's the expectation for them. So. There's nuances on so many levels. So many levels. I, you know, I, I think one thing that I think from that story, um, just the graciousness of somebody else to be able to speak some hard truths to you and to, and to say some things to you that, um, you know, he was not sure how you were going to receive those. Right. But, and then your graciousness to receive those things and to be able to like take them in and go look and work on them. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously I'm thinking of, 10,000 things to to follow up with on you right now. Um, I want to talk about Colin Kaepernick and, and that situation for a second. And so it, the, the context, if you've not, if you're not familiar with the story, um, when, when Colin publishes, uh, I think it's a graphic novel, um, a few years ago, uh, he talked about an experience where he, you know, experienced racism in his home. Um, he had his hair done in cornrows, like braided back to the scalp and his parents, I think his mom particularly, said, Hey, that's not professional. You look like a little thug. And at the moment, I would not, I don't know if in that moment, Colin thought that is racist. Or if in the moment he internalized that, you know, in a, with a big question mark, like, well, I don't know what to do with that information. Right. Uh, a lot of, a lot of adoptive parents are going to hear that. And, uh, get insecure and feel like, well, there's a moving target. Like this is revisionist history. And like, she's just looking out for him and all that. How do we start as adoptive parents, like through your eyes, Rhonda, like how do we avoid getting stuck in that insecure trap of being too fearful to say anything to our kids um, out of fear of offending them or being, uh, being too outspoken and provoking that narrative of, of you should be grateful and you're, you know, we're, we're here to help you and all that. So uh, there is a Nigerian word called Amachi. It means who knows what God can do with a child. Hmm. I strongly believe that as parents through birth or through adoption, we are all entrusted with these incredible little people. And we, as a person of faith, we are here as parents, as mentors, to inspire them to soar into who they are meant to be and be able to grab hold of their own God-given purpose. So when you look at it with a context like that, and in this case, when you adopt a child like Colin Kaepernick, like 
me or any other adopted child of color. The goal is not to create white people that have the exact same values and the exact same morals and the, the, the exact same isms as you do. We come to the table, like I said earlier, with our own DNA, with our own rhythm, and it runs deep in all of us. Just go on Ancestry.com and you will see. And look, I'm embracing. I'm as African-American as they come and Frisian as they come. But I'm going to embrace my sweet. I'm going to embrace my Swedish roots (laughs) and my one, what is it? Three percent European Germanic roots. <laughs> um, all of these things are a part of us. And so when they are a part of us, that's what we come to the table with. So getting to specifically your question, Colin from what I understand, he wanted his hair in cornrows. The same thing. I traveled to Africa to visit relatives in West Guinea. And I had the an African woman from Guinea, West Guinea, braid my hair. There was something spiritual yeah. about this black woman from Guinea, Africa, touching my scalp and braiding my hair. I took so much proud pride in that. My spirit was full. Yeah. And then I come home, fly into Dulles airport. And my father picks me up blonde hair, blue eyes, tall. And he sees my hair and he gives a disapproving look. And then I get to my home and he's married. Uh, my parents separate, uh, divorced and remarried to a Vietnamese woman who I do love. But she looked at me and was disgusted because of the braids in my hair. And both my parents sat me down and said, Rhonda, you need to take your braids out. They do not look professional. And this is in 1997. They do not look professional and it's not becoming of you. You're a professional woman. So I don't know what Colin Kaepernick was, was thinking, but my parents turned proud prideness, beautiful. I was joyful. I was, my spirit was full. They turned that into me feeling shameful, ugly, unworthy. And then the, I should be grateful kicked in. And what I did is take out those braids Mm -hmm. and I buried the experience until much later. So you can feel when I tell you that story, how that would make you feel. Now, when my father, adoptive father, wanted me to wear wooden shoes that he had to wear when he was in Friesland, Netherlands, 
And he wanted me to say prayers in Frisian Mm. and buy into his values and cultures. And my mom wanted me to read the Today Meditation. It couldn't be our daily bread. It couldn't be a a devotion from an African-American woman that I would have wanted to read from. It had to be precisely what they wanted. Yeah. By the time we as adoptees come of age, mm-hmm. when when Cyril met me, I didn't know that I was black. Mm-hmm. I didn't know my hair mattered because it wasn't cared for while I was under the roof of whiteness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I was worthy, beautiful, smart. In fact, I believed I was quote unquote retarded because that was the narrative that I came into the family with. And so Cyril had to really single-handedly say, you need to know who you are and where you come from. And when you look in the mirror, you need to see a beautiful black woman, smart, capable. And he says, look at what you've been able to produce. Mm -hmm. That's how you need to think of we you need to think well it was how i'd recommend thinking about what do we say don't what don't we say because when you understand the assignment everything else falls in order yeah yeah hmm. i'm i'm wondering thank you for sharing that um i'm wondering about when you said you were writing your memoir and yes. I think you may have said, did you say balancing the checkbook? You said something about yes. balance. So I, I wonder if you could expound on that a little bit, because I'm thinking we need some balance here. Like I'm hearing that story and I'm like, I, there's no nuance in that to me. Like that, <laughs> That's just plum up needs some re-edit. What is coming up? Yeah, sometimes you got to write notations. And Come you on, gotta, that's you right. You got to write why you're tra- you're taking money out of one account and putting <laughs> it in the rightful bank, and you go yes. back years. So, in my career as a fund manager, I'm surrounded by fiscal reports, balance sheets, income statements. So, yeah. my memoir is, in a sense, combining all of myself mm-hmm. and talking about. Balance sheets, because one of the things that I have experienced as I have spoken on this issue for decades is that people can understand the work it takes to pick out your favorite corporate bond or your CD or your, you know, um, how, you you know, or, or your car or your house. That's sort of the same intensity if not more that should go into how we care for our God-given children and, and trying to balance the, to, to make the balance sheet, right. There it is. That's right. Yeah. Is by taking note of what Cyril had said to me, you gave all of your power, all of your, your, um, um, yeah. Power to your, adoptive parents everything you do he says as you're giving them credit for is what you said that was so powerful too much credit too much credit yeah not saying that they don't get any credit that's right they get a hundred percent credit right right no they do not (laughs) 
Yes. And so there's an interview I did on ABC Live um, with um, Kyra Phillips. And it was a fabulous discussion. But I had finished talking about the impact of my African-American godmother, the impact of my black mentors in my life. I finished talking about the value of finding my birth family and how they have poured into me. And she ended it. And I, I and I know she meant well, and I am so um, I just valued the conversation I had with her. But the natural instinct and how she ended it was your adoptive parents must be so proud of you. Mm-hmm. And people were like, but she just finished talking about all these African-American. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not, yeah. she didn't it out of malice at all and 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 certainly they should be proud of me i would hope that they're proud of me right but that's not the goal is it we always go back to right yep the white parents should be yep should should get all the credit well what about my mama who prayed into me who wrote down what is expected of me that i actually listened to and that's why I pushed as hard as I did. Yeah. What about my godfather? That the minute he became my godfather, has prayed for me, has pushed me, has written recommendations for me, has has sat with me while I've cried, has told me, wipe your tears and get back up and keep moving forward. Well, what about them? Yeah. You know, what about these mentors that did not, nor should they had to clean up any of my mess in my white family, but quietly with class and strength sat down with me and talked with me, prayed with me, pushed me. What about them? But it's, always going back to white adoptive parents, which rang a little hollow since I, my adoption is fragmented mm-hmm. for the reasons we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 Rhonda, I think yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, uh, what you described in your like the last few minutes of talking just then and thinking about Colin Kaepernick his adoptive parents are sitting by his side at his book release in the midst. It's not like the first time they read that book was when they're hearing questions about it. Right. So like clearly he had had to talk with them about that, like knowing this is going to go public and it's going to become a firestorm because, you know, writers love to have the word Colin Kaepernick and their title to get clicks. Right. So like we know that anything or, or even more recently, I'll ask about this in a second, the Michael Orr story, like we know there's going to be lots of eyeballs, lots of opinions, lots of, you know, that, but yet his, his choice is still to have his parents by his side on that day. And I, I think one of the things that I love to, 
expound upon more is exploring how can we, um, and, and I was going to say as adoptive parents, how can we as parents, because some of these same nuances are obviously different roots, but exist within biological family structures as well, right? There's both ends in, in all of our lives that exist where there are really crappy parts and really beautiful parts and neither one is untrue because of the other, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I will be embarrassed one day to stand to account for some of the things that I've in anger said to my kids at different times or out of frustration done. And then I'll, I'll stand really proud and tall for other moments where I was there for them in really beautiful ways. And I can be proud of how I loved them and cared for them. Right. It, based on the day you will get my kids, uh, being very <laughs> proud of me and then wanting me to go jump in a hole. Right. So like there is both in amidst all of our conversations. I wonder if, if you would speak to that um, and how can we begin to embrace both those things to elaborate within that both end um, without shying away from taking responsibility for the bad and then embracing the good and the unknown and the hard. So I think with everything, there needs to be grace and compassion mm-hmm. and forgiveness, some basic fundamentals. And that should be applied to what adoptive parents And Lord help us, please, we deserve as adoptees grace and compassion too. everyone, Mm -hmm. non-adopted siblings in the community deserves this. Mm -hmm. Once you have that fundamental. Now we have to look at. Some of the things that. Were really were 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 driven uh, the point was driven um, by reading um, the the Rorta, the, the Simon Rorta trilogy of books on transracial adoption, and that is when we bring in an adopted child, a, a child from a different ethnic background, racial background. How are we preparing for them in our homes? Mm-hmm. Are we still living in predominantly white spaces? Are the people who come to our, who are welcome to our dinner table, do they look primarily like our white parents or are there reflections of people that look like us? When we go to places of worship, are we welcoming to people that look like our children? What are the assumptions we have? All of this stuff needs to be checked. All of this stuff needs to be checked. And when we when we do the right things, adopted kids are going to say, mom and dad, mom, mom and mom, dad and dad are seeing me in the picture. We have moved in, in too many of our trans white transracial adoptive families in a way that is not flexible to embrace somebody like me. And so this is why fragmented families happen. If my parents don't think that me connecting to my birth family is important enough, even if it's important to me, and they don't go with me on that journey. They don't take the risks with me. They're not there in the emotional turmoil. They're not there. I'm funding it financially, emotionally, spiritually, and they're nowhere in sight. And then wonder why our relationship is fragmented. Yeah. 
if all of the family reunions are in white spaces uh, and there's no reflection of somebody that looks like me, yeah. Why am I going to continue in the, you know, when I'm 30, 40, 50, 60, going to these, these reunions. Right. So, and then, and then let me also say this, and this is something that, you know, I did put in my memoir. Why this impacts people like Colin Kaepernick or, um, you know, anyone who is adopted transracially whether they're aware of it or not, <laughs> is because when we get out here in society, people don't see me walking along with my blonde hair, blue eyed father. I don't have that um, white umbrella of privilege. They just see my wide nose, big lips, dark skin. And so my solutions can't just be, I have a white father. Society's not, doesn't care. Yeah, They don't care. So we need more strategies. Uh, and so um, what so many adoptees are realizing is that the journey to find self and to care for self and to embrace our worth takes us in a different way than like what my white brother and my white sister have to deal with or my white aunts and uncles and cousins. Like for instance, as far as the balance book, I'm off the bound, their balance sheet, my brother and my sister and my dad, my mother, they don't even have to remember that they have a black sibling mm. or a black family member. And they get to go out in this world with a full tank of white privilege yeah. But as but but for every transracial adoptee that got placed by the sole decision of their white adoptive parents, we're out here trying to figure it out, taking their mistakes, taking their risks and having to pay the price for that. And that's not fair. Yeah. That's not fair. So when you look at that balance sheet, they're getting a lot of these benefits. We're adapting. Adoptees are adapting to their comfort level, to yeah. their values, to their norms. And as long as we do that, then they're not going to get anxious and they might keep us longer. But I knew at a very early age, God was leading me to a place of wholeness. Mm -hmm. And I had a long way to get to that place. Yeah. So I couldn't rely on my parents because they were not going to go there with me. Mm. They were not prepared to go there with me. They did not want to go there with me because I asked, I begged, I cried, I paid yeah. for, I offered. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to my uh, to my wedding with a black man. They didn't want to go. So, so. So many adoptees are left without networks of diverse people that will support and lift them up and inspire them as they take this journey many times alone. Yeah. Well, it's the second part of what you said that caught me. I, you know, I, I was struck um, early on in our parenting journey at how wildly unprepared I was to raise children of African origin. 
period. And how, you know, I, I was very comfortable beginning the process, very comfortable in the middle of the process. Uh, like Rhonda, I grew up in Atlanta and I mean, we went to a high school of 4,000 people. It was barely majority white. Most of, oh man, this is a very white thing I'm about to say. Most of my good friends that I played sports with growing up were black or from a different ethnic background than me. Like, uh, and because we were growing up in such a thriving kind of metropolis, like a gigantic city as it was exploding in growth, I didn't know other people from, like I was living in Atlanta, but I didn't know other people who were from Georgia, if that makes sense. Like we were living in Atlanta, which was sort of this like melting pot city in and of itself, uh, where most of my friends' parents were from California or Chicago or Boston or uh, St. Petersburg or whatever. So we didn't have a geographical identity as much. And a lot of the, the Southern stuff didn't really penetrate that bubble because there was not Southern norms in our the culture I was being brought up in, in, in the suburbs. Like it was sort of like a, a, almost a, almost a, almost a geographical blob, like of nothing. And so, um, I, I felt very comfortable because of my exposure to black culture and Atlanta is a, a very black city. And I, you know, my first love was hip hop and I used to hide the radio under my pillow at night and listen. So I felt in a lot of ways, I felt very like connected and informed of like, okay, there's some things that, I don't know experientially, but I feel like I know sort of a roadmap to help. And I mean, I, I maybe maybe we were two or three years in, and I remember just having this this hopeless feeling of like, I don't see the chance at this. I don't even have the first idea of how to walk this road. So the idea of not being prepared for it, I think, is an inevitability for anybody who chooses to walk this journey, be it white families, black families, et cetera. If you are adopting transracially to some extent outside of prior knowledge, you're probably unprepared to walk that journey, right? It's the want to and the willingness to go there where exactly. I, I don't believe you have an excuse as a parent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and I look at it, a journey is an adventure, right? You don't have to know everything, but you need to have the curiosity to want to learn. You need to have the courage and the boldness to move forward along with your child. If you want to have a relationship with your child as an adult, yeah. And if you want your child to be fully proud of who they are in all of their worlds. Yeah. And, um, you know, we have too many adopted children who are an adults that are walking around horribly wounded. Yeah. And too many adoptees that are six feet under prematurely. The, I would not be speaking on this topic if I did not see the benefit. If I did not see the beauty in our transracial adoptive families, because we we have so much beauty and power and uh, uh, abilities in our transracial adoptive uh, family, but we don't look at that. Because we don't see the whole picture. We don't want to. Mm. We're afraid to in some cases. So yeah. you have to, just like for me, I had to learn to look myself in the mirror and embrace all parts of me. And when you do that, you are a force. You yeah. are a force of nature. And you hold power. You hold beauty. 
You hold humility, you hold vision, and you hold an understanding of the value of your ancestors. Hmm. So how do we equip our kids and how do we equip parents to go there with their kids? Well, first of all, ask yourself as a adoptive parent, when you look in the eyes of your child, you need to ask yourself, what kind of relationship do I want with my black and or brown adult child or a child who is going to become an adult? How do I want that relationship? Do I want to put in the work to keep it? And when you say you want to put in the work to keep it, then you've got to understand transracial adoption is bold, it's complex, and it's context tied. It's a lifelong journey. Yeah. So a parent shouldn't be going to their daughter's house at the age of 40 something and saying it's too hard to have a black daughter. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. 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 You have to decide what kind of relationship you want. And are you willing to look at yourself for life as a multiracial family? So when it's time for you to retire, you're not just going to these gated communities that are all white and don't want black or brown folk in there. Right. You've got to make your decisions. If I had a deaf child, I'll tell you right now that child will be my life. And I would learn how to navigate in a visual world and a hearing world. And she is a part of who I am, my legacy. And I would be there with her as she navigated these worlds and celebrate with her in these worlds and grapple with hard issues in these worlds. But if you're propping, if I shouldn't say propping your feet up, but if you look at a map of your life and there is not an adequate, a, a plentiful um, example of your entire family in your life, uh, there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. What about for kids, Rhonda? We're, I'm thinking about, Kids, you know, who are beginning to come of age, uh, number one, this idea of going there with your kids uh, also also relies on you being patient to wait until your kids are willing to ready to go into these hard places. Right. So like for kids, uh, maybe they're teens, tweens, kind of like starting to really view the world and uh, maybe get mad maybe get scared, maybe get super pumped to be out on their own where they don't have to be tied to this white family's identity anymore, whatever. Um, For the teens who are starting to wrestle and starting to really work through this, how do we, how can we support them to take that journey or to take some of those first personal steps um, in healthy ways instead of uh, ways that might lead to bitterness and resentment only? That makes sense. Yeah. So I I can tell the story, I think, but I'm not going to say who it is yeah, because great. 
existential, but uh, talking about a tween, um, this couple is a, is just an incredible um, transracial, white transracial adoptive parent, they're, they're white transracial adoptive parents. And, you know, they go to the culture camps. Um, uh, they, well, let me back up. They have two African-American boys and they are tweens. And um, they have exposed themselves to the African-American culture. They, they have friends, long-term friends in the African-American community. They go for guidance, but they also share their experiences as a transracial adoptive family. So it is, they're investing in the African-American community and vice versa. So their, their sons have seen the commitment of their parents. And what that does for our young people is that it slowly builds trust that our parents have our back, mm. that they are rooting for us, that they love us, that they have resources in the African-American community and vice versa, where it's real, it's tangible, and it's sustainable. And so recently, to get to your very good question. Um, I got a call, an urgent call from the mother. And she said, I need you to talk to my son. He's questioning his, why he's not part of his birth family. Mm-hmm. He loves us, but why isn't he part of his birth family? He experienced, there was a loss in his birth. He lost his um, father and uh, he questioned these things and he was going into depression. The good news was he was, he was talking about it. So it was some of that pain was coming out of his being to give him some. But she asked if I could talk with him because I have mentored him. I have been in that family's life. So I got on the phone and I told him, I too am adopted, as you know. And I told him that I would be there for him and I'm here for him and I'm willing to listen as only as if he's comfortable sharing. And then I talked about my life, about loss and about my love for my adoptive family. Yeah. And that you can have, I talked about the nuance. See, when we talk about the nuance, then then it gives us permission to tell our truth. Yeah. Because this young man, I call him young man, but he's a tween. (laughs) He loves his adoptive parents deeply. Those are his parents. But he feels deeply about his birth family and you can have, and that's what I told him. I said, sweetheart, you can have both and it's okay. You can be ecstatic that you're going to culture camp and then you're going to go see a real football game. 
and you can mourn the loss of your birth father. When you can have these conversations, it's building trust and continuity. That's what tweens want. That's what they're checking to see. Does my, are, are my parents strong enough to handle this? Yeah. And when I talk to this young man or this tween, he shared with me what was on his heart. We talked for 45 minutes and his mother was there in the background. And what I said to him is at the end, how proud I was of him that he um, thought about these things and what it shows of his heart that he cares deeply um, and that his uh, his parents, his adoptive parents are there for him and for him to share with them what is going on. Now, I'm always going to be there. Like I say with my godchildren, I am always going to be there. But you also have your parents who are a great source. Yeah. Gosh, this is a hard road to walk. Um, I it's think very what, hard. I, what I keep hearing you say is just that the willingness, you know, for parents to fight off the insecurity of uh, at, at every parent, regardless of um, your source of parenting, right? Like whether that came biologically or through foster care, through adoption, through other means, um, it, you know, every parent wants to be able to uh, shield their kids from pain, shield their kids from hardship to keep them from having to walk through hard stuff. Um, and at some point, every parent also has that reminder or that, that moment of going, yeah, but I can't, right? I can't. So if we can't shield our kids from every hard thing they're going to have to walk through, um, how, how do we um, make that daily choice to grab their hand and just make sure they're not walking through it alone? Right. And that's what this is about. It takes a village. Yeah. It yeah. takes a village to because not everybody has all of the answers. And that was one of the the gifts, I think, in their voices, Black Americans on transracial adoption gave to the transracial adoption community is that living room conversations with incredible African-Americans that you couldn't, that you're not having in your living room, but you get a chance to by reading this book and it's, it's, it's collaborating, but we have as adoptees need to see our parents model that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And what happened with the family I'm talking about, what this tween Black adoptee saw was his adoptive parents modeling. Mm -hmm. They were there. They were listening. They were supportive. And they came in tandem with me to give him encouragement, guidance, and support and reminding him he's not alone. When you do something like this, you keep these kids not just alive, but you give them the tools to begin navigating out here. Yeah. And yeah. that is gold. That's platinum. 
And then and then we put in place, uh, you know, he's going to therapy. You put those resources, but you also have these connections. But if this couple didn't do their work, there wouldn't be a Rhonda Rorta talking to this young man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You've got a book that's going to be coming out sometime in the future. You've written it. It's done. Um, a memoir, you know, the balance sheet, so to speak. And so um, do you, I know you've mentioned, you talked a lot about it throughout. Um, what is, if, if somebody asked you like, Rhonda, what's one thing um, about this book you're most proud of? What What is something that came out of it that you're most proud of uh, as you get ready to launch it here in the future? I think because what's most important is I finally listened to the inner child within me. Mm-hmm. And I saw her, I heard her, and as the adult Rhonda, I promised her that I would love her, care for her, and support her. And so my memoir is a tribute to the little girl within me and also to my mama. I love that. Love that. When it becomes available, I'm not asking and telling you, we've got to have you back on to talk more about it and to do a giveaway or something. Um, But uh, Rhonda, thank you so much for your time and and sharing everything. Um, I will tell you, if you're listening to this, you're like, where the heck did Tana go? Her computer battery died. Okay. You know, we didn't have our cord here today. So uh, her computer battery died, but she um, also said, thank you for jumping on with us. And so um, Rhonda, we appreciate you so much. Um, Let people know where they can find you, information about you, your books, all of that. Uh, You can uh, go up to my website, uh, rondamrorda.com. There's also an author page with my first and last name on uh, Amazon, uh, just Amazon in my name and you will see the trilogy of books on transracial adoption and in their voices, Black Americans on transracial adoption. Uh, but again, website is probably the ideal place because uh, I have a team of people who will look at and I will look at any messages that come through there. Okay. Before we go, last thing, uh, we got some quick hitter questions for you. Okay. So just kind of first things that come to your mind here. Um, what is something that you are, uh, reading, listening, or, uh, listening to, or watching right now that you love, or it could be all three. Something that I'm reading is a thousand lives by Julia Shears. It is a book that you have to it's about Jonestown. You have to read and set down. I just adore her as an author. She's also a non-adopted, white non-adopted sibling. She has two black um, brothers, but it is a very compelling. She's a New York Times bestseller. Okay. She's compelling work. Awesome. And my devotions. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, anything you're watching right now that you love? Oh, let's see. Well, see, I just sort of got done writing a book. So I've been watching (laughs) squirrels. I've been watching squirrels. I have been watching all sorts of birds. I have been in the woods. Uh, I have been 
the mountains. Awesome. I have been by the beach to 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 bring out the story within me. Creativity. I mean that that seems like a much better thing to watch than TV these <laughs> days, right? Like that's that's pretty good. Okay, let's say you can have uh, you can have a dinner guest, dead or alive over to your house and you can have whatever meal you want. What are you, who are you having and what are you cooking? I am having Sterling Brown and his lovely wife and their children at my house. All right. And what's, what's, what meal are you going to bring? I'm going to bring oxtails. Okay. With jasmine rice, asparagus, and I'm going to have peach cobbler. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to come as well. I'm not, I'm just going to invite myself. <laughs> you're to that. welcome. <laughs> that sounds hey, amazing. You're welcome. And then last question, what's giving you life right now? I think what's giving me life is that I'm a child of God and I know it and I embrace it and I love all of who I am. And I think from that place, I'm hitting it um, hard with purpose and I'm, and with passion and I'm loving life. I love that. Rhonda, thank you for joining us. You are welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Ah, just love Rhonda and so thankful for her uh, coming on with us and and sharing um, so vulnerably like she did. And um, I, I will say, uh, and I shared this with her after we recorded, um, you know, so many of the questions that we asked today uh, just have come straight from our experience in our community here in Memphis uh, of, of other adoptive families. Um, it, she has been so gracious with her time and her willingness to um, share stories and, and share her experiences. Uh, we're just really, really thankful for her. And, and she's become uh, a great friend in the process. And so um, really thankful for her coming on today and just really want to encourage all of you who are listening um, to take your kid's hand and, and to walk through hard places together um, and to to show them experientially that you've got their back. I'm preaching to myself too. So as I say that, I, I'm saying that to myself too. This is not me um, pointing that out for you. I'm saying it to me as, as well, but we got to take our kid's hands, walk through the hard places together um, and uh, yeah, and, and be there for our kids um, as they get to embrace all of who they are. So for all of the people here at ETC, for Tana and Mo Ottinger, for our whole team, uh, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, and Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, I am J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Bye.